Hey everyone, welcome to the Metrology Today podcast. My name is Ryan and I'm your host today. And the great guests keep piling up. Today we have Jeff Gust on the program. Jeff is the chief corporate metrologist for Fluke. And he's had a long career in metrology. He started out in the Marines as a TMDE repair technician. And after the Marines, he went on to Tektronics, both as a calibration technician and quality manager. And then moving on from there to Verizon. And from Verizon, he went on to create a proficiency testing division for Comedic. And he did a lot of work there designing proficiency tests to help calibration laboratories meet accreditation requirements. He then spun off that proficiency testing division to create Measure PT. Eventually in 2010, Jeff joined Fluke for his present position. Jeff has been an active member of the metrology community. Many people know him from writing and presenting numerous technical papers. He's helped develop quality and training documents for NIST, as well as for the United Nations Industrial Development Organization. He served as a consultant to several accreditation bodies, was an ISO IEC 17025 assessor for nine years, and if that wasn't enough, Jeff was also president of NCSL International and served for many years on its board of directors. Jeff also represents NCSLI at the International Laboratory Accreditation Cooperation, or ILAC, and is currently the chair of laboratory committee and member of the ILAC executive. He also stands on many committees. Today, we're actually going to be talking a little bit about ILAC P14, but he also stands on the P10, the G8, and many others. But without further ado, let's get to the interview with Jeff. Jeff Gust, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. So I have a lot of things that I would like to talk to you about. Some of these are going to be selfish questions because as I told you in my email to you, you know, I'm a retired Marine, so definitely a lot of interest in your history. Um, is that an okay place to start with you? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's a great place to start. Um, sure. No, great, great to, yeah, it's nice to see a fellow, run into a fellow Marine as well. So. Semper Fi. So you were a TMDE Marine um, back in El Toro, which I, I was stationed at Miramar. So I know everything transferred at one point mm -hmm. from there. So why don't you tell us about your introduction to mil uh, to the uh, to metrology? Sure, because I mean, that you're right. That's always one of the most interesting stories because not very many people, you know, start out in like elementary school thinking I'm going to be a metrologist. You know, we're, there's a very few that actually wind up doing that. But uh, so much, much like many people, I kind of stumbled into it. Um, I really you know, grew up in, in Ellensburg, Washington, a little cow town up in the in central Washington state. Um, didn't things in the 80s were not really good economically there so i uh, decided to join the join the marine corps and at the time my father had said uh, you know think think about something in the future like electronics so i i went in an open contract at 2800 electronics i had no idea what i was going to do yikes so, <laughs> yeah and uh went you know went went through uh boot camp in san diego and at the time they were um, they had so many people going through the, the electro basic electronic schools that they actually kind of gave us about a three or four month pause and sent us to a fleet marine unit 
before we went to school, which that gave me some really incredible experiences. Um, I wound up at First El Mako, the electronics maintenance company in, in Camp Pendleton. And uh, that's, and they put me in a, a ground radio repair section and I was having a great time learning about radios and, and working on those. And I was actually even thinking about uh, maybe uh, Force Recon is a you know radio repairman in Force Recon or something like that at the time. I was also a 300 PFT type Marine, so I nice. enjoyed things like that too. Locked but, on. Um, yeah. But my, uh, my neighbor in the barracks, he had said, hey, you know, they've got this field called calibration and it's a, and it's a really cool field. And, and once you get out of the service, it's a great career for you. You can go straight into it that said, look, not many people are repairing radios outside of the military. So, but, you know, fixing the oscilloscopes and frequency counters and signal generators, that's, that's an in-demand type of a, a job. And, and at the time, there was also some motivation about if you uh, get that You've got to be number one in your basic electronics class mm -hmm. uh, to be able to get that school. And they'll send you to this great place in Albany, Georgia for training. And so it sounded, sounded kind of interesting, but I wasn't sure. And he said, and, and if not, they'll send you to this place called 29 Palms for about a year for, for a radio repair school. And yeah. after my three months was up and I transferred out to 29 Palms for basic electronics, I took a look around there the very first day of that high desert in January where the wind's blowing cold and everybody just hates life and being there. Yeah. I thought I gotta get to I gotta get to metrology school or calibration school. So and that's that was kind of the the start of it. I um as you know, the the 2800 school was in Georgia and we learned really focused on more of the repair and understanding the electronic circuitry and not mm -hmm. as much on the, the calibration aspect because they thought if you had a TO, you could you could do the calibration on that. Now, yeah. Ryan, were you a ground side Marine or an air wing Marine yourself for that? 6492, so I was air yep. side. Yep. Now, did you have like any electronics background? Because I know I did well in the beginning electronics schools you mentioned you have to do mm -hmm. well to go on and that ended up happening because i took electronics all throughout high school and said auto shop was all full everyone wanted mm -hmm. to be able to fix cars and then i got electronics and that helped me out is that what happened yes. with you yeah yeah it, it actually really did um well i did take auto shop and metal shop but but in addition to that we had a great science teacher and he had uh, an electronics course you know where we learned a lot of fundamentals of digital logic and, and, you know, transistor theory. So we, I, I had a lot a pretty solid background behind me. In fact, in, in the, um, in the basic electronics course in the Marines, the kind of the, the make or break week was um, the fundamentals of digital electronics to understand. And in those days it was transistors mm -hmm. hard, hardwired into gates, you know, at that point too. And right. uh, for, fortunately, well, I, I had a couple of odd, coincidences happen. I was uh, also wrestling on the base. Uh, I was on the base wrestling team at that time. And I actually had to start that week and then drop that, drop that week and repeat the week to, uh, because I was going to the California state freestyle and Greco Roman championships for the wow. on my, behalf of the team. But then that gave me the chance to like go through that week twice. So I got a hundred percent on the test and they said, Hey, anybody who can get a hundred percent on this, we want to send to the, to the calibrations training as well. So I just, again, just really, really fortunate. A lot of things just fell into place for me as well. Sure. And, you know, even in our school, you know, we mm -hmm. put a basic electronics course in there and I based that off of the military because it is really helpful for someone doing calibration to know yeah. basic electronics, you know? 
Yes, and even if you're even doing pressure measurements or, or temperature measurements or, or dimensional equipment, a lot of that are just transducers and they have an electronic back backbone as well. So you really do need to have that electronic experience, um, yeah. no matter what industry you're in uh, or what part of, uh, uh, of metrology you deal with. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, even in those physical dimensional areas, it, yeah, all of those, uh, the what are those called? Comparators and, and all mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yes, height, height comparators. They yeah, you know, they they have electronics in them. Um, again, pressure transducers, temperature readouts. You know, all all of the they're all basically electronics that are you know the, to to, tr to transduce that physical quantity like length or, or pressure into an electrical quantity at the end of the day. Yeah. So once so did you enjoy Cal while you're in the the Marine Corps? Oh, uh, was it something that yeah. was enjoyable to you? Absolutely, I really enjoyed myself. Uh, un unlike you, though, in the 1980s, they were starting to reduce the size of the military, so they were trying to they were freezing fields for promotions and things like that. And for me to go to Lowry, and did you go to Lowry or was it Keesler for yourself? Keesler, yeah. yeah okay. I was so one. Of, I think we were like second or third that started uh, at Keesler. One of the first. So mm -hmm. for us, of course, it was Lowry for the in in the ground side. They would send you to the uh, physical dimensional. RF microwave and advanced calibration all in one shot and then change your MOS. And I was very interested in that, but they, but you had to have E5 or Sergeant, you know, in a couple of years left of your contract to be able to pick that school up. And they had froze the field and froze the field. And mm -hmm. so I thought that there's no chance of me getting a chance, the opportunity. And on the, the day that I was leaving, doing my exit interview with our executive officer with, with the squadron, um, I, I had uh, walked back to my shop and they said, oh, you made the cutting score by like 200 points. You're, pu you're putting on Sergeant now. And uh, nice. <laughs> But the same day, somebody from Tektronix, uh, a former Marine from Tektronix, his name was Randy Van Wee, and we've been great friends for the last 30 years as well. He was working at Tektronix in the Irvine field office, and he said, anybody with calibration background, we'd really like to talk to you about a job in, in Southern California. And I yeah. thought... Uh, Southern California at the time, where the education was very, very inexpensive. So I was thinking about going to school at the time there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I went down and interviewed at uh, Tektronics. And well, I really just wanted to see the place. I didn't really want a job. I just wanted to go see what, uh, you know, another type of calibration facility looked like. And uh, next thing I know, they had offered me a job and I'm, and I'm uh, doing a, a oscilloscope repairing calibration at Tektronics. Yeah, and then and then you ended up going to school, but it was in, at yes. the University of Purdue. Yes, was it was it you did physics, which mm -hmm. hats off to you. I mean, that's that's a tough that's a tough school. Mm -hmm. uh, is was that directly for calibration, or were you thinking uh, about going off in a different direction? Okay, no, so it was for uh, calibration. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, so. You know, and again, I'm very proud. I think the best, some of the very best metrologists are people that start on the bench as technicians because you have to have the time measuring. You have to have the actual experience in measurement and you know, doing the calibration processes. That's a critical part. But the other part of that is you need the academic understanding to really get to that next level as well. So I, I was uh, working at Tektronics in Southern California, and I started going to um, attend college at Cal State University Fullerton. And I was going to plan to be an electrical engineer until I hit my first physics class. 
And, and it, by that time also, I, at Tektronics, my career was shifting into metrology. So I was starting to become the person that dealt with the brand new standard, MIL standard 45662A. That was brand, you know, hot off the press back in 1988. So I was doing the metrology quality audits, you know, for the thousands of customers that were customers of Tektronics at that time too. So I was kind of starting that metrology path. And I was also observing that the scientists at NIST were primarily physicists as well. So mm. when I got into my first physics class and I started talking about my professor about what I did, he kind of said, you know, what you're really doing is, is physics. And metrology technically is a subfield of physics. Um, you know, a lot of the people who win their Nobel Prize in physics, they are actually cited on their citation. Is, it, it talks about metrology or advancing the, the, the field of measurement. Like Al, Albert Michelson, the first United States uh, citizen to win the, the Nobel Prize in physics for his measurements on the speed of light, it very specifically states on his, his award for advancing the metrology in, in, light, in light measurement. Wow. I didn't know that. That's really cool. And so um, outside of there, I've I noticed you also, you know, you obviously you worked other places than Tektronix over the years, um, mm -hmm. but you've also been really active in the community because you, you've spent your time as a president of NCSLI, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what, and I, you know, I don't know if you heard the Mike Schwartz podcast when he came on, but he mentioned that uh, I think anecdotally that you've mentioned that those conferences were a big part of your, your learning over the years. And I was looking at your Twitter and you have a bunch of, uh, conference badges that you keep as kind of, you know, it's memorabilia. So that's yeah. really cool too. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right, Ryan. Professional development is, is incredibly impactful for, for our careers. Um, we, any of us who want to be a better metrologist, getting a chance to go to a conference is a really great thing. And, and, and if anybody has that opportunity, they should be taking full advantage of that. There's local NCSL chapters all around the United States. There's a, a great one usually in Utah and the Utah section where you're close to. I hope, mm -hmm. hopefully you've caught a couple there through when you were at Western yeah. States or at mm -hmm. your current school. And, but, um, so it starts from, from participating to, helping and support the conference, whether you're doing presentations and, and moving into leadership. But the first place where I was really exposed to that, so I was working at Tektronix and I, there was a, con a great conference in Southern California. And at the time, it was huge back in, uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And that was the Measurement Science Conference. And that was just down the road from Irvine, right. usually in or the Orange County area there. And I, you know, being a, a, a cocky Marine that, you know, I'd been in the Marines for three, four years and I'd went to work in the Tektronics. I thought I knew a lot about metrology right. at that time. Yeah. And I went to that conference and realized I didn't know anything. <laughs> and, and, and I had such a great time at that conference and realized that there were flow measurements and pressure measurements and temperature measurements and microwave measurements and dimensional measurements and measurements of gravity and every, everything you could think of on that. And, Again, you know, I had start really from from those days when I had started into kind of the metrology position at Tektronics, my personal goal was to be the best metrologist I could possibly be. Yeah, and and I've really set my career in that. So yeah. part of what you were saying is uh is to give back. So, you know, so attend for it starts with attending the conferences and um and and when I moved over, so I worked at Tektronics for a couple of years, but then I went over to a company called GTE, the telephone company that right. is now known today as Verizon. And they had a, 
an excellent calibration lab in Southern California there as well. We were, we had a pretty incredible lab because we had this uh, manager that was um, pretty crafty. I'll just say he was very good at getting equipment, whether it was capital or not, whether it was um, 65 line items of $499 a piece, you know, he, he oh, would wow. get us equipment. Yeah. So it gave me a great opportunity there. And that was where I wrote my first paper was as a technician at when I, when I was working at GT in Southern California. Wow. Yeah. And I think, um, I don't remember the dates. I don't think you guys overlap, but our, our lead instructor, Joseph Rindoni also worked at that same lab, I believe. Oh, really? I, now I don't recognize the, the name, but I worked there from about 1992, 1995 as a technician. And then I think he was shortly thereafter. Ah, just after that's, that's a shame. I would have liked to know him. I, I definitely, I'm sure we have a lot of common friends there at the, that Probably. location too. But, um, by that point, I would get, it was just starting to get into about the junior year of my physics program, and I actually took a promotion from uh, a you know, metrology technician to an actual metrologist, uh, a staff engineer type of a position at our site in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So I loaded up the U-Haul and drove across the country and 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 moved moved to Fort Wayne area and uh, began, you know, and, and when I first got there, the first thing they said is, by the way, you're going to be our representative for NCSL. And the next thing I know, they asked if I wanted to be the section coordinator for Northeast Indiana for NCSL. So I helped organize the first, uh, the, my first meeting there. We were, we had some other people that were doing it before that, but that's how I got involved with NCSL is when I made that move across the country. Wow. That's, that's really cool. And, and I do want to get more into some mm -hmm. of the other things that you're in, but mm -hmm. before we do that, yeah, I definitely yeah. want to start talking about fluke. You know, mm -hmm. you started working at fluke almost, almost to 11 years now, you know, you're mm -hmm. uh, here mm -hmm. in July. What exactly does the chief corporate metrologist do? I know that's one of the biggest questions that we got from people that we asked is wow. what is a, what is a day like for you? Mm -hmm. Or what is your general, yes. um, plan of attack for yeah. your, career no that's that's a, that's a great question ryan and, and again um you know like i said i love my job i i think i'm the luckiest guy in the world um it's kind of kind of interesting i'll just just share kind of a story that i about that as well so when i when i took the this was a few years after i was the president of ncsl and i had quite a few international contacts and one of my close friends um his name is uh, professor andrew wallard and he was the director of the international bureau of weights and measures the bipm Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, run, running the world's metrology program, right? right? The big and, dog. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, uh, I ran into him because I made it kind of a bit of a surprise to show up at the, the 2010 NCSL conference in Providence, Rhode Island. And I'm wearing a fluke shirt at that point. And, and he looks at me and says, Jeff, what are you doing? And I explained to him the position that they created had never been done at fluke before fluke has an incredible history there, you know, of great metrology people and, and people that I just, you know, am so enamored with and respect so much. So to be asked to come in and help lead that organization was really cool. But I, but it, what it also happened is Fluke used to be just the electronics part, but right. in the, in the early two thousands, they were, they were acquiring and growing. So they had acquired Heart Scientific, the arguably the best temperature metrology organization. They acquired date wave tech Datron, another fantastic calibration 
entity. They had acquired DH Instruments, the the and and Ruska both is the is the pressure organizations. I, funny story on that. I'll tell you maybe uh, a little bit later too. But sure. so they're bringing all of these together. They realized they needed a higher level metrologist who was comfortable with all of these technologies and had familiarity and skill in all of these disciplines to be able to manage at a higher level. And that's, that's what they hired me in. So I explained this to Andrew, Andrew Wallard uh, again about that. And, and he looked at me and said, wow, that just sounds like the best job in the world. And I said, Andrew, you're director of the BIPM. You have the best job in the world, but, right, yeah. but that's, but that's the level that people, thought, you know, about what, you know, what the position entails. So, so back to your original question, Ryan, so metrology. So, you know, number one, one of the things I also like to say just in general, that metrology is an, it, to use a term from Greg Strauss at NIST had coined is metrology is an infra technology. In other words, you can't advance any technology, no matter what you're talking about, unless you have the ability to measure it. So, mm-hmm. so in that it's very much infused all throughout Fluke. Fluke is known as definitely one of the greatest metrology companies in the world. There's some wonderful di- dimensional companies at CMMs that are really, really good at that. In, in they're part of it. But but again, I think you know that uh, Fluke is well looked at and respected in the field of metrology. Um, but so metrology involved is exists in all places throughout the company. We have metrologists that are doing research, fundamental research on the next generations of technology of how do we take some of the experimental technologies and make it into a product. And then we have metrologists that are hand in hand with the new product development team. So when the engineers are building the 5790B, we have people like one of my great electrical metrologists, Melin Todorakov, who is a you know, a, a fantastic engineer and metrologist working hand in hand and doing the independent verifications that that we can and developing the measurement methods we're going to use to calibrate that product. We work in operations. So when we manufacture products on a day to day, how do we have those test stations? And by the way, when we so when we build 5730s, the, the big the big box calibrators that mm-hmm. are, you know, accurate to few parts per million, we have a process there that's called process metrology. Because um, we're calibrating those products, doing an external calibration to the 24-hour spec of that product, every single one. So we have to have ridiculously small uncertainties on, you know, on that process. And, right. we, and we do that by, um, we actually use two different 5730s that we have, use as process metrology standards to check standards, if you will. This is one, this could be a whole podcast just about on that, that by itself. But um, yeah. uh, but we, and and once a week, we'll, we'll run those through the test station line, just like we were calibrating a product, but we also take it into our primary electrical standards laboratory. And we have a very specially test station that's characterized down to you know the the tenth of a part per million using our very pri- highest level primary standards and our best metrologist does his characterization to keep that station super accurate and we look at the difference between the test stations on the factory floor and our primary laboratory and we control chart every single test point is under control under SPC uh, linear regression so we could look at where it is and where it's drifting if it's going towards a control limit and we could mathematically push corrections back to the factory at any time, but we're always right. keeping that station calibrated. So we, so we're critical to operations on a daily basis service, of course, which is where most of our metrologists in the world live is, 
you know, are critical to ISO 17025 compliance, mm-hmm. uh, maintaining that. Um, and we could talk about that a little bit later too. Um, but so we're inv- heavily involved with service. I, I have the uh, the metrologists that report for our fluke service centers also report up to my organization as well. Okay. Um, and then and then on the end of it, marketing and sales as well. I you know we go out and we try to help people feel confident about fluke products. And also when right. you build the world's best products, you can't say we can't have an engineer go out and say, well, it's this is how we put it together so they can perform. So because that would be giving away our trade secrets. But right, right. as a black box, we have to, a metrologist has to demonstrate how did we test that unit to validate that it actually performs to the level we said it do, it does and put those out into the into the area of peer review. So present those at like the conference on precision electromagnetic measurements or, or, or NCSL or other conferences as well, so that people will accept that our products do what they say they do. And that's kind of a backhanded marketing as well. That's interesting. I never really thought about that overall process because, you know, I, I didn't want to interrupt you when you were um, talking about the, the flute stuff, but it really is ingrained into at least my my whole career because I learned on fluke stuff and then I taught yep. on fluke stuff at the schoolhouse. And then now obviously, you know, we demonstrate with fluke stuff as well. When, when you look at something like that, it is definitely become a, a cornerstone in the industry, you know? And I guess for me, I didn't really think about those things that you got to have to go out there and prove because I just inherently think, Oh yeah, fluke, yep. they've, they've got it under control. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> I know. I'm sure you get a lot of, um, I guess most of that gets directed towards you if there are questions. Is that right? Uh, I, you know, I have a great team of, of wonderful metrologists who are you know, the top of their, their field in the world and a lot of their disciplines as well. Even though we, have, we do have technical support people, we have that front line of technical support. And they're great, sure. wonderful people. But when you get the toughest of the tough problems, they bring in the metrologists because we live with these products. We're usually operating these products to be much, much better than their, than their uh, public specifications. Because guess what? When you're trying to calibrate uh, uh, a deadweight piston gauge, well, the only thing you can do is use a better piston gauge. And we already make the best piston gauge. So now we need to do statistical work to try to even characterize it to, to fractions of, of its parts. Um, right. you know, an example of that too is, so when we do production on the... Uh, on on uh, the 5790b uh mm-hmm. we'll say the wide the wideband option that measures up to 57 megahertz 50 megahertz so, so mm-hmm. as you know the 5790b was built to calibrate the 5730 series of calibrators right, right. Mm-hmm. but but it, the if you're going to do one of those 5790s then you can go back to your primary standards and set up and do a very slow and deliberate process but when you're trying to do hundreds of them at a time you need to come up with smarter ways. And what we've done is we've taken a, a couple of special 5730s and we do a monthly characterization to calibrate it much, much, much more accurate than its specifications. And we could actually in turn use that as the calibrator to calibrate the 5790. But in order to do that, oh. we're holding that 5730 to 1% of its published specification. And that, it was never designed to do that but those are the kind of things metrologists have to do, and sure. uh, you know, it, and it's uh, it's it's a really it's a challenging position. 
Sure. And, and I'm, I'm curious, and I don't know how much of this you can share about the process in this, yeah. but when you're looking at things like that, cause it sounds like you're gathering constant data on your own products. Yes. Is that kind of what goes into, Hey guys, we got to update, update this 5,700, you know, mm -hmm. the AAN, the good old one I used to teach on, you know, it's like, Hey, we're starting to see some loss of accuracy here or there yeah. or whatever. Is that kind of what happens? Well, you know, there's opportunities for improvements where we could say, look, we're trying to use it to calibrate an 8588 or a 3458, and the TURs are just not the way we would like it to be. So can we get a little more accurate? That's one of it. But also one of the, but I will say that by far the bigger challenge for us is we are a manufacturer, so we're dealing with end-of-life components for things. And there are other international regulations. So, for example, the, the Rojas initial initiative, which is the removal of hazardous substances. So that means that electronic components can no longer contain things like lead or mercury or, or you know those types of things. And the international regulations say, hey, you can't have those components anymore. So we need to redesign the product without those components. So that's right. a, that's a real challenge. And again, the, you know, I, again, cause I'm an old guy, you know, the through hole component, the through hole type uh, components don't exist anymore. It's all, it's all surface mount technology. So once again, yeah. we have to redesign and still keep that incredibly good specification with completely different sets of components. So that's, and when, right. we, but when we're inside of that, then, then we think about, and what else can we do? What can we, how we're can already we make in that here. better? Yeah. yeah, we're already in here. Why not fix yeah. it up? And yeah, you're, you're right. I remember being in electronic school and they're talking about, you know, we were doing some uh, uh, troubleshooting and learning all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're like, mm -hmm. but whatever, you aren't going to have to do much of this anymore because it's all surface level now, you know, and, and car yeah, replacement yeah. stuff and all that. Yes. Yeah, things keep getting smaller. That they certainly do. They certainly do. So, um, I had a thought and then I, then I lost it. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and go on to your next, next question. Then. Yeah. Right. So as, my, as the, as the, as my, the, my grandson wanted to say hello to you, I guess too. So he hey. came, came in to say hi. He's my new metrologist. I'm, I've been teaching him measurement uncertainty and, uh, and he got the tape measure for his second birthday. So we're, oh, we're very working cool. on measurement theory with him. <laughs> I know I've taken my daughter to when I was at Western state, she came to a day there and, yes. and she, she was like, you know, I thought it was going to be pretty boring, but after things got moving, it was pretty interesting. So, you know. I think that people really love metrology. People are actually very fascinated in metrology once you introduce it to them. And I'm, I'm excited, right. Ryan, that you're uh, that you're thinking about you know outreach to your daughter, you know, and developing mm -hmm. her for STEM ed, STEM fields as well. That's such an incredible thing that we need to be doing more of t today. Is is as metrologists go out to the schools and teach kids about yeah. uh, the the fundamentals of measurement because they're it's not well known and understood, and even their teachers don't know it very well. Right. Well, and, and that's something we're working on here in Utah uh, with some of the STEM programs. And then obviously, once we have one working well, we're going to try and grow it across. But, you know, it, it that was one of my questions. Um, you know, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen over the years? That kind of leads into that that question, because I noticed when I came out of the military, it was just there's a, a struggle to find technicians. And so that's a big thing that we're trying to do is get those STEM programs and get new generations interested in petrology instead of us that just find out about it from the military, basically, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, I, I, so I've looked at the, the history of NCSL as well. And I looked at some of the things they talked about in 1964, when they, when they formed the organization as well, when they talked about the need for education, you know, in the industry, 
some of these fundamental things and they're almost the exact same things that we're dealing with today. So what you're saying is some of the, the things that have changed are things that haven't changed to a point, but right. I, and, and I don't want to be a grumpy old man to a point as well, but, but what I'm observing out there, and I'm glad that there's organizations like yourself at sign calibration school doing this to get education because we do need to educate the, the the workforce. They are bringing people into metrology. And I'm seeing what we refer to as a de-skilling in the field where yeah. people are coming in with less and less skills. And I'm even seeing that where a senior de-skilled technician is now becoming a de-skilled manager in certain right. parts where they don't have the fundamentals. They can't make the good decisions for their laboratory. So there's, you know, again, activities like yourself, education is mm-hmm. great. But then how do we educate them? Because in this in this blipfert world where everything has to be compressed to a two-minute YouTube video, right? How do you get this wealth of information that needs to be done out there? And it's it's a real challenge. Yeah, and and we went with the route with levels with that, but then also we're partnering, you know, in fluke. I would love to have you guys on board, but more finding the experts for that higher level stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. when we start to get level three, level four, I'm not going to feel comfortable teaching most of that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I'm I'm really good with that level one, level two stuff, and then you know, then it goes to like Henry at Morehouse for force. Mm-hmm. You know, he yes. you know, let them teach, let them teach that higher end thing, but you know, it's 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 definitely a challenge, and and I noticed coming out of the military like it was expected that we were going to know most of it but we also don't learn temperature and things like that mm-hmm. anymore you know there's a lot of holes that's true and and i think the thing that the military doesn't teach yet that is a huge hole is measurement uncertainty and the concepts around measurement uncertainty most of the military that the uncertainty analysis has been done for them so that they don't have to do it they follow right. you know the the nav air the nav c or the or the air force to or the army tvs and and it's kind of done said use this equipment and then you're there but but you know, I I've been studying uncertainty since probably about 1993 or so when the when the first drafts of the gum first came out, and I still learn things every day. But the the one of the most critical parts to my development as a metrologist was the the study of measurement uncertainty because a lot of there were a lot of areas where I made assumptions of oh this doesn't matter you know this is this isn't a critical thing but you do the math. And you know what? That's a really important thing. And other things you thought were super important, you do the math and you find out it wasn't so much. So really understanding and applying measurement uncertainty made me a much better metrologist because now I understand where are the critical uh, factors in my calibration process that I need to control. And I can make smart decisions you know, out of, yeah. out of the process. Yeah. Understanding the uncertainty. And then you're talking about the field is lessening in their experience and their knowledge. And then, and then the industry is getting nothing but more accurate. Yes. Like I'm yes. just seeing the craziest, more accurate, smaller. And, and you're right, you know, coming out of the military, all we care about is TARS, you know? Mm-hmm. And so any, yeah. anyone listening, cause we do have quite a few in the military that listen and are in our school, you know, they come out thinking, oh, I just have to do that four to one and everything's mm-hmm. good. But then you come out and you realize that really isn't. And, and, you know, there's no real customer focus in the military. You know, it's just getting it done and not mm-hmm. worrying about the risk because, like you said, it's already yeah. calculated. Yeah. But uh, you know, and to your point, in electronics, 
the TAR, the test accuracy ratio, is fundamentally equivalent to the test uncertainty ratio, where you think of the expanded uncertainty of the measurement result, because the, the person actually generally in most electronics contributes uh, very little uncertainty to the repeatability and reproducibility of those readings. But, mm -hmm. but when you're into dimensional, when you're doing a torque measurement, if you just do a TAR, an accuracy ratio of the, the, the torque transducer to the, to the torque wrench, it may look great, but, but the person, because you have so many variables about where you apply force on the handle and the angle that you have, and even how the ratchet is set, in, set into there, that they can, they can double and sometimes triple your entire uncertainty. So that is such a big difference in understanding controlling those is where you really need to be thinking you know, as yeah. well. Oh yeah, and and listening to some of the stuff that Henry provides and mm -hmm. talking about getting things straight, and then he goes through and does the offsets, and and you can see what the error is, and you're like, I know I've seen a setup like that before, you know. Or he says like, you know, you you really shouldn't use threaded rod. I I even said on the podcast how many people are like, oops, yeah. we're doing that right now, <laughs> you know. That it's yes. just there's a lot of misinformation out there with with some yes. of those things that are contributing to the errors. Yeah. And Henry's an incredible expert in his field, and and he can quantify the errors from using threaded rod, you know, and tell you how much you how much it will, you know, affect your measure the quality of your measurement process. So you you brought us a great transition into why why you're on here. One of the main reasons sure. uh, next week, uh, January twentieth at eight a.m. Pacific Standard Time, you are having a training on the new P14 guidance that just came out. Now we're yes. not going to give away much about that training, but uh, it it does cover uncertainty, and and a lot of our our listeners are going to be uh, students and not familiar mm -hmm. all that much with ILAC, mm -hmm. because they'll mm -hmm. be familiar with ANAB, A2LA, you know those type of things. Yes. So do yes. you mind talking through the importance sure. of those things? Sure. So we have these accreditation bodies that are out there coming to the laboratories and telling us if we're right or wrong and doing making the assessment of our technical competency through the standard of ISO 17025. But who who watches ANAB and A2LA and, and NAVLAB out of that process? Well, they all belong to an umbrella organization called the International Laboratory Accreditation Cooperation. That's the organization where accreditation bodies around the world are all a part of, and they have their and they have the system of of peer assessments and peer evaluations to determine the competency of accreditation bodies, but. You know, and again, the reason that we have ILAC, one of the strong reasons is to help facilitate and promote trade around the world so that we can accept mm -hmm. calibration and testing reports from other parts of the world. So um, just pausing a little side story on that for a second. Sure. So in the, in the 1990s, before I came into Fluke, um, when Fluke sold the calibrator into Germany, um, quite often Germany would say, we don't accept your traceability. It wasn't calibrated in Germany, so it's not traceable to the PTB. And, and Fluke would have to pay to send it to PTB for calibration. So that took weeks of extra time and dump, you know, thousands of dollars of, ex of more price into the process because somebody wouldn't accept that Cal certificate. So and now in, in, in the late 90s, early 2000s, ILAC created the mutual recognition arrangement saying that when we evaluate these accreditation bodies, we assess their traceability. If you're a part of ILAC, the, mutual, the ILAC mutual recognition arrangement, 
we you can accept each other is one of the requirements is accreditation bodies must accept the results from the accredited other accreditation bodies. Mm. So now when we sell that product to Germany, they they do accept our results. And that's that's a wonderful thing. But yeah, some of the things in order to do, do that, so the, the accreditation bodies are doing assessments, evaluations against IS using ISO 17025 as standard. And I'm gonna back up on that just for just a moment mm-hmm. to say that sure. ISO 17025 is the standard about competency for testing and calibration laboratories, but it's not made to just be an accreditation document. It, it, we actually very purposely wrote that, and I'm one of the one of the people, the authors of the 2017 version of that. Um, but that we we always wrote it, and its original intent was made for all laboratories to use, whether you're accredited or not. So, because it's not an accreditation body document. There are some places that are a little bit vague and, and purposefully so to let the best judgment of the laboratory fit in. However, mm-hmm. when you're doing, uh, trying to do assessments around the world and having a, a, a level playing field and make sure that everybody is kind of interpreting things the same way, sometimes you need some supplementary documents just for the purposes of accreditation to that standard to make sure that we're all doing it the right way, the same way. And that's where the, the, the what they're referred to as the P series, the procedural series documents in ILAC, where, that's where they come from. So there's uh, what in metrology, the two that are the most important is ILAC P10 on traceability, measurement traceability, and ILAC P, P14 on the expression of uncertainty of calibration results. For So it, and P14 covers the requirements if you want to be accredited, you have to meet the requirements of P14 for the uncertainty that you put on your scopes of accreditation and how that uncertainty is presented on scopes of accreditation. So it's not ambiguous. Mm-hmm. You know, again, before P14 came out, there were people that were doing things unintentionally bad and maybe intentionally bad. It's sure. sometimes too, where <laughs> yeah. they would say, um, I could measure zero to a thousand volts and my uncertainty is a part per million. Well, it might be at one volt, but it's certainly not at a thousand volts. So, right. you know, so we said, look, you need to be, have an uncertainty that is clearly described whatever point you're at in a range so that everybody knows exactly what your uncertainty is going to be for that, for that, for that part. So that's one of the rules in that. And then we also have the, the um, rules again of what do you put on your CalCert for uncertainty too. And that's right. And that's what that document really fundamentally does. And is that what you see is the, maybe one of the, I, I want to word it correctly. One of the biggest problems out there in the industry right now is uncertainties. Oh yes. Oh yes. This, the, the lack of knowledge about uncertainties is still a tremendous problem. And again, so let's, let's back up and about, talk about what is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So uncertainty is the quantification of the quality of your measurement result. That's really what it's doing is tells you how well you really perform the measurement. Mm-hmm. And most people don't understand it or put enough effort into it to really get a good to really understand that well. So a, a few years ago, um, after I actually left uh, Verizon and I uh, partnered with uh, with uh, a, a couple of uh, Jim Jenkins and Karen Moore at Quamatech and founded a division of Quamatech called the Quamatech Proficiency Testing. And, and mm-hmm. so I founded a proficiency testing organization and where 
where it's a part of the accreditation process. Hey, if you think you could say, you're a laboratory and say, hey, I can measure a resistance to five parts per million uncertainty. I would, I, what I would do is I would design the experiment and say, mm-hmm. great, measure this resistance. Tell me what your uncertainty is and tell me the value. And I would tell them if they're right or wrong. I would send it to places like Fluke or Sandia National Labs or NIST, you know, for, yeah. and, and really control the experiment. And what I found is about, that uh, for the people, people's first proficiency tests, especially, about 60% of the labs failed that because they underestimated their uncertainty. And then so, the, so they were saying they were better than what they were. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and it was usually obvious errors. You know, fortunately, and, that, and that's kind of where I really enjoyed that role, that, that job for proficiency testing, because you kind of had to be a super metrologist in that role as well, because I had to know and understand every single customer's measurement process and probably where they were making their errors when they when they didn't when they weren't successful in that but and it was wonderful to partner with the laboratories and mm-hmm. help them find some of these issues as well so so yeah that's interesting yeah if you open yourself up for this stuff you are going to improve Absolutely. it's just something i mean do you feel like the hesitation sometimes is people just don't want to, uh rep, like, do they feel like it's going to hurt their reputation I, I mean yeah okay some of some of it's fear some of it's they feel like they're too busy some of it's uh where they uh, where they just uh you know don't have the time or, or energy to be able to do that i mean but again i i truly think that most people have good intentions and they're trying to do good things and that whenever they do whenever bad things occur, it's usually because of lack of knowledge, you know, about a process. And uh, so I'll share with you, like, well, and again, that's why in 17025, in this latest version of 17025, I put some teeth in it to say, PT had to be a part of your assurance of quality, uh, of the quality of your measurement results. You have to be doing that because you have to look outside of your laboratory yeah. to assure, make sure that you're measuring well. But um, I, agree. I, I remember one customer, they were doing a temperature measurement and they were using a, a 3458 that was connected to a temperature probe. And so of course you have to do a four wire resistance measurement for that. Well, um, they failed ridiculously bad. And what I could tell is that they were probably in two wire mode, you know, on that. And they were adding about an ohm of resistance, which was, they were claiming like 0.05 degrees and they were like a degree and a half off. I mean, so their normalized air was like, they were like, 56 times greater than what they claimed they were so is yeah. rough. Like lead, lead resistance, you know? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, and it just, it was really fortunate that I happened to be in the local area. So I stopped by and visited the lab and I, and I just said, show me, show me how you did this measurement. And they walked up and they, and they did exactly what I thought they did. They went up and pushed the resistance button instead of the shift resistance button to put right. it into four wire ohms. So we taught them that and then we had to retake the test. And then we, found some more errors and they, and they improved and they corrected those things. And then we went to the third test. And by the time we got to the third test, they were actually measuring it within their claimed uncertainty of 0.05 degrees. And it's really exciting that they, they learned so much. They took, you know, took that advantage of that and they, and they improved what they did. Right. Yeah. And that's great. It, the only, the only problem is that a lot of this is actually getting to customers, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, that's the unfortunate part. Yes. Yes, it now, is. Now you're mentioning um, P10, P14. How many of these are you involved in? Are, are these considered committees or are they uh, just uh, groups or teams? No. Wonderful question. So, and I'll kind of, again, I don't want to get 
talking all day on that, but but where this sure, came sure, out sure. is that as a uh, past president of NCSL, um, they asked me to come back and help and be the NCSL representative to ILAC. So ILAC is made up of these accreditation bodies, right? That are the people that actually come and, if you will, tell us you know, what to do, you know, in that process, mm-hmm. but they also have a stakeholder committee called the laboratory committee. So I, since, since NCSL is an organization of calibration laboratories mm-hmm. and the only member people could be members on that are members of organizations of laboratories. So th- there's other, was like Eurolab, which is a, a large organization in Europe of testing laboratories. And they're one of the big members of that. But anyway, so this laboratory committee comes together to give a voice for us, the laboratory, as they're writing these rules on uh, for us as well. Gotcha. So, so that's how I get involved. And within ILAC, there is uh, a, a laboratory or a committee called the Accreditation Issues Committee. It's where the accreditation bodies go, gosh, we're having a problem here because that accreditation body over there is doing a bad job because they're not, they're not doing this, this, and this. So we would write a document, we'd identify the problem mm-hmm. and close the close the gap by by writing a document. And, and fortunately they have uh, brought us in and, and we in, in the laboratories, the, the calibration experts have been a big, big part of helping that. And especially uh, some of the people, NCSL, the Americans have had mm-hmm. a lot of say in that. So one of the guidance documents they have is the, the guidance document is on like guard banning on, on the decision rules for using around guard banning strategies. That's called right. a guidance document, not requirements, but and that's, I like G8 and John Harbin and uh, Bob Stern from Keysight Technologies were incredible contributors to help develop that document and get that document put out on the streets as well. So, so yes, we've, it, but that's been my role the past few years. You know, I've been involved with, I was the NCSL representative to ISO CASCO when we rewrote ISO 17025. Mm-hmm. And so once 17025 was rewritten, they said, look, these other documents, the the document on traceability and the document on calibration uncertainty probably needs to be updated to match the requirements in the new documents. So I got involved in helping to write sure. those documents as well. But while you're already on this one, can you uh-huh. can you take a look at these other ones? Yeah, that basically. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it, and I very much enjoyed. You know, it's part of. I feel like it's part of my responsibility to the world to help make sure that we have good documents that help the laboratories and also level the playing field. We don't want uh, documents where a less than scrupulous laboratory could get away with doing bad things for the customers as well. Mm-hmm. We want documents that are, are, are reasonable, you know, re- reasonable, but, you know, are based on good technical competency principles, you know, as yeah. well. Yeah. I think it's great. Now I, I think here in the last little bit we can we can wind down a little bit uh, again sure. that training on on the P14 changes is January 20th at 8 a.m. So at Pacific Standard Time you said you were on the East Coast uh, still living in uh, Pacific Time right now. Yes, I still live in Pacific Time. So my computer says 11:51 uh, a.m. right right now for on my on my PC even though I'm a few hours later. I just it's easier to keep your schedule when I travel the world. You know mm-hmm. I I so in in the 10 years I, at Fluke, I traveled about 700,000 miles. So I just find it easier to keep my schedule on Pacific time, no matter where I am in, in the world. 
Yeah, that was actually one of my next questions. I, I see that you travel quite a bit, um, especially around the world. That's got to be a real pleasure. And it, is that um, is that mostly, can you explain that? Is that mostly getting people familiar with your products or is it uh, sometimes solutions? Like people need help with solutions? Is it just variable? Uh, it's variable. I mean, sometimes I'm busy. Excuse me. Sometimes I'm visiting a manufacturing site or um, a service center for flukes. So maybe I'm doing their 17025 internal audit or doing some training for them. Sometimes I'm going out to visit customers. Sometimes I'm going to a technical conference, a metrology conference that's somewhere uh, around the world. And, so, and and these ILAC meetings, because they are an international meeting, they try to move it around into different parts of the world so people aren't always struggling with, with uh, jet lag, you know, from the same right. location. So they do now, of course, over the last year with COVID, all of that is shut down and we've had to do things uh, you know, virtually, which is good to a point, but boy, you get so much more done when we're face-to-face on these meetings yeah. as well. So we've kind of band-aided it this year, but it really has impeded the progress that we've made on certain initiatives and documents as well. So I'm, I'm looking right. forward. Hopefully we'll be in Montreal in, uh, in October of 2021. And we're, I'm looking forward to, to getting back on the road and, and getting a chance to visit that. But, but to your point, it's not all glamour because quite often I, people will say, Oh, what was, what was Rio de Janeiro like? And did you go see the, 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 redeemer statue and i said no i think i drove past sugarloaf on the way to the airport and that's about what i did this trip you know so wow yeah you don't, you don't, so yeah sometimes you don't get much time to be able to look at places but other times if you get four hours to go see the berlin wall you know then, then it makes it all worth it as well that's really cool though yeah, I, I'm wondering uh, what things will be like in the future. Last year, uh, 2020 was supposed to be our first year at the conferences, and then everything got got changed. Well, yeah, because well, we I never heard that. Me, oh, for sure. And uh, that's that's one that I try and make sure that we talk about on these because people, I didn't know anything. I I was in calibration for almost 20 years before I found out about these conferences. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just not something that is brought up in calibration labs in the military as often. Mm-hmm. I'm sure people like at uh, Corona and all that, they, they go to them, mm-hmm. but, but not individual lab ma- managers. Yeah. We, we, we need to make, we need to get more local memberships and, and we've had military membership ideas floated within NCSL, but try to get the magazines into the laboratories so that people could a, learn calibration techniques and theory and also mm-hmm. learn when the conferences are at and it, because they do a good job of publishing those and, and putting those out. Mike Schwartz does a great job with Cal and CETA with Cal mm-hmm. lab magazine. And they always have a great section on what's happening. What are the new trainings? Probably your sign calibration school. They're putting up and telling what, what classes online, you know, in-house classes you're having as well. So um, right. you're right. We need to, we need to get that, that message out. And, and I think a podcast like yourself is another great way to get the communication out. We just need to get more and more people to discover the podcast too. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully, uh, we'll, you'll definitely bring some, some visibility to it. (laughs) So I had a, I did have a a fun question for you, at least for us calibrators. What, so do you have a personal favorite discipline? I know you, you practice in a lot of them and you talk about a lot of them. Is there anything that you, if you were to have to do some calibration again, go back on the bench, what would you like to do? Yeah. And, you know, and actually I still do go on the bench on occasion. I, 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 I do occasionally do that. This helps support my people and train my people. Sure. Um, my favorite area still is probably 
uh, you know, electrical resistance and electrical precision voltage, you know, in that in that area. I've done a lot of work in those areas and written a lot of papers on those, but I also really love thermodynamics. So, mm-hmm. you know, temperature and pressure and humidity, um, all of those areas are, are really fun. But I'd probably say my, my, my best expertise uh, where I've done, you know, spoken, you know, on a global level, is probably electrical resistance. You know, that that mm-hmm. you know, from from down from 100 micro ohms to peta ohms. You know, in, in that area. Yeah, and I bet I bet when you get that crazy down there, that physics helps. Oh yes, absolutely. You know, when when you think about like a, our Thomas one ohm standards, and we talk about that in defining the measure and for the product as well. Mm-hmm. You're right. It's it may be what is the value of resistance of the one ohm standard, but then you realize that temperature plays effect in, in the resistance values on it. So then you say, what is the temperature of 25 degrees Celsius? And then, and then, but then you also understand that when they're in Utah, like yourself, mm-hmm. that the actual less lack of pressure, air pressure will reduce the strain on the resistor and actually lower the, the electrical resistance on that standard as well. So you need to think about that. Oh yeah, there the, yeah there are pressure coefficients to certain resistors. Uh, definitely exhibit the Thomas one ohm, and even the SR one hundred four. Well, it has a has a pressure coefficient of a. Like, now theirs is like parts in ten to the eighth, but um, but the um, the coefficients for resistors are are the Thomas one ohms. Those are quite a bit more. So yes, uh, having a, having characterized at sea level and at a higher elevation, and understand the pressure coefficients when you're doing really precise work. Yeah, and, and you're right, and it's all physics. At the end of the day, that's it's crazy. all physics, and that's why it's it, the the physics education is is super helpful to that, and it's made me. That's definitely helped me to see the next level, you know, in, in metrology as well. Yeah, yeah. Resistance and capacitance are the secret, very d- difficult precision calibrations, in my opinion. Yeah, yep. those get but, really tricky really quick. Yeah, capacitance and inductance as well. Yeah, those are oh, those inductance too. Really, yeah, yep, those get really, those can get really, really hairy. And and yet you're right with capacitance. You have temperature effects. How much are the the plates actually expanding or contracting? But then you have fringing effects. You know, and fields oh, yeah. like bending around corners and the dielectrics. And you know, you're right. You, all of these things you could spend your entire lifetime just getting good at one of those disciplines. And right, you know, I'm, I'm probably more of a, a jack of all trades instead of the true master but that's why we've got some great people like like mike coleman at our american fork lab who's a, an expert in temperature metrology and mike bear who is trained more national metrology institute metrologists than, than you could shake a stick at on how really? to, uh, on pressure measurements oh yes uh, through their advanced piston gauge and advanced pressure metrology class so we have some wonderful subject matter experts that I could lean back on and yeah. And then, and we could have our, we could spar and, you know, and challenge each other, you know, on the, on these issues as well, because metrologists do, you know, one of the things that you're doing that's very important too is in order for metrologists to develop and grow, a lot of us are stuck by ourselves in a, in a, in a laboratory of a, of one, you, if you really want to grow, you've got a network, you've got to have these conversations mm-hmm. with your fellow metrologists and you need to make that network, uh, you know, wherever you can through NCSL online, where, you know, on the TMD calibration page for, uh, for in Facebook or, you know, wherever, but mm-hmm. that's where you really grow is to challenge your thinking and challenge your philosophy. You know, a, a lot of times in the lab, when we're trying to solve a problem, we'll, I'll, I'll pull back and I'll say, okay, philosophy time, 
There, there is no rank in this room. We're here to talk about a metrology problem. Whoever has the best technical reference and the, and the most logical reasoning is going to win the day. You know, and it doesn't matter yeah. who it comes from. You just have to be right, and you have to prove that you're right. You know, as well. Well, yeah. And not you. You and I both know you could. It doesn't matter your position in the room. You might not have any clue, or or might not have the right solution. Period. Absolutely, we could all learn. We could all learn from each other. Yeah, exactly. I, I, so one other one other fun one for you. And sure. this was a question in the metrology group. I know you're in there, but uh, I didn't see huh? if you answered it. But people wanted oh, me to ask you as sorry. well. Uh, no, no, no. It wasn't directed towards you. It was a general question. But uh, people wanted me to ask you as well. What's the weirdest calibration you've seen? Oh gosh! Like I've That's... calibrated uh, in mortuary yeah. in the in the morgue before for the the county. You know, yep, and, and yep. you're around oh, dead bodies. Nice. That's pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's yep. very awkward. Yeah. Uh, you know, in fact, we were trying to st- get that started within our group about it in our metrology staff meeting, talking about what's the weirdest type measurements you've seen. Probably one of the weirder ones I've seen is when I did some work at uh, the Navistar, one of the Navistar test facilities, and they had something called the gravelometer. And it was, uh, you know, a device that basically an air pressure hose that spit gravel at at paint samples to see how much paint would chip off, you know, uh, in this uh, amount of time. Painting pro- yeah. Over, oh. over amount of time for a painting process. But, uh, uh, you know, that, that was probably one of the, one of the weirder ones. And I'm sure I could come up with a few more if I thought about that too, but that was, that's the one that, that is came a weird one. My head. Yeah. That one is weird. But it, so is it a, they, do they make sure the, the same amount of gravel comes out every time? That's the, I mean, that's really got to be challenging because you, I think that they were using the same uh, size, like number number seven or number you know, or sure. number twelve gravel type for, mm-hmm. for. So they probably used a sieve. You know, that's another another fun oh, yeah. one too is the calibration of sieves. If you've ever, like a smart ever scope, done that yes, yes, yeah, I have, yeah. <laughs> That's always a, been, a, been an interesting one. So well, yeah, and and uh, I always tell the anecdote that you got to be careful that they know to give them to you clean because who knows yes. what it that that has been put through that sieve. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I you know to clean. I remember one time we were doing some calibration at GTE of uh, of pipettes, and uh, we got in a load from from Baxter, and they're processing them on the back dock and saying, "Hey, what's all this yellow gunk all over this?" And then they realize. Oh, this is dry blood. And this was like when AIDS is really a big issue. You know, and yeah. Baxter's did research on that. So our back doc freaked out over over possible exposure to blood, you know, at that oh, at that nightmare. time too. So yeah. So we we had to back out of that one. I think the GT got completely out of business because they didn't want the legal risk, you know, associated yeah. with that. So Oh yeah, that's a nightmare. Well, Jeff, it has been a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Uh, hopefully we can do this again. I think there's a, a, quite a few uh, topics that I didn't even know you were. Um, that's my fault. I should have known you were that deep into 17025. I'd love to talk to you about that as well sometime. That'd be great. But, um, any, anything that you wanted to pass on? Uh, every, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Uh, is it through your LinkedIn? Uh, I, I would actually say, um, you, you, and, and again, uh, LinkedIn is certainly a way if you, if you follow me on LinkedIn or want to communicate through LinkedIn, that's great. Um, and I'll just say my email is jeff.gustafluke.com. You know, now that being said, I get 200 emails a day sometimes. So it may take a few days for me to get back to you. Yeah. you know, so, it, it, but if, uh, it, and if I, 
do slip, I apologize. Just nag me again, but I, I don't have I to give out your email if you don't want to. No, that's totally fine. You okay. can, you can, so I, I do it all my training and all my presentations. It's going to be on the, on the webinar. I'll put it out there as well, because I, I feel it's important to be accessible and it's important sure. to, to, to try to mentor and, you know, and, and help everybody in metrology. It's, it's, metrology's given so much to me that I want to make sure I'm giving back and, and helping and supporting the entire world and the metrological community as well. So, well, I'll tell you, uh, that's felt throughout the community. People have told me un when I said that you were coming on and everything, anybody I talk to raves about you. So you're doing a good job out there. No, thank you, Ron. I really appreciate it. It's, it's so nice to meet you as well. I mean, very cool to meet a fellow Marine, and I hope we get a chance yeah. to sit down and have a beer at one of these conferences one of these days. Or if I if I do, when we do get to traveling and I get, get into American Fork, I'll, maybe I can swing by and pay you guys a visit as oh, well. Oh, yeah, we do this. We can we can uh, live stream stuff too. So, yeah, a lot, of, a, lot of, yeah. a lot of opportunities. Sounds good. Well, hey, thanks again, Jeff. Thank you very much, Ryan. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you want to be a guest on our podcast or you have an idea for a podcast, contact us at information at signcalibration.com. Mm-hmm.